Let's just bang it out. <laughs> trying to be efficient. Hey there, I'm Kimberly Adams, and welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday. We are going to talk about the news and then end on some Make Me Smiles. Uh, we are going to get started, however, with the news fix. And go, you've got like one, two, three, four, well, you've got four. Go, you go. Three of them oh, are the same, same uh, okay. which is, and maybe everybody else already knew this, but I've been in like retreat world, but that California has voted to go ahead and ban new gas car sales by 2035, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. And it's an extremely big deal. Yeah, because not only would this change things in California, now this doesn't affect cars that are already on the road. Um, yep. It's yep. just the new cars. But there are, I think, 17 states. So California is a little bit different than other states in that it can mandate um, like environmental standards that mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. do something. Um even if they're different or more stringent than the federal governments, most states can't do that. And there are like 17 states that basically do what California does, usually. And so this not only matters for California, but it means it is likely that the states that generally are on board with California's environmental regulations could also be on the path to banning the sale of gasoline-fueled cars. And this is a pretty big step when it comes to sort of the clean climate future or cleaner yeah. climate. But cars last a long time. So mm -hmm. we're what we're meaningfully talking about is, you know, like 2050 when there would likely be very few gas-powered cars on the road, right? Right. 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 I think, the, yeah, I think that's a good time frame. Right. Because even if the so the last fuel powered car in California is sold in 2035, let's say it lasts 15 years and cars are lasting longer. So, yeah, 2050 works, which is, of course, just about where we are supposed to be at like zero carbon in order to meet emissions promises, which, of course, is going to be tricky no matter how many cars we take off the road. Yeah. Anyway. I just wonder if, you know, I'm sorry about the helicopter. No, no, no. It's, I'm not going to blame you for that. All right. Um, All right. But, you know, you were just talking the other day about, you know, p production lines shutting down for gas-powered vehicles so mm -hmm. they could switch mm -hmm. to clean energy. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's even going to take until 2035. Or are car companies, and <clears throat> is it going to become like a niche thing, like a luxury item instead of, you know, like people who buy, mm -hmm. you know, fancy... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good comparison, like a fancy car that just has some yeah. sort of thing. I'm not articulating that well yeah. at all. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, well, no, but but yeah, no, I do know what you mean. But just to take that a, a, a stretch further. So Dan Neal, who does car reviews for The Wall Street Journal, used mm -hmm. to be a regular on Marketplace, but then he moved to North Carolina. Pulitzer Prize winner, by the way, for uh, criticism. Dan had a great thing like six weeks, two months ago, reviewing a BMW electric something that mm -hmm. he drove over in Germany. And he said it was amazing. He said it was incredible, the handling and the efficiency and the styling and the this and the that. And then he closed the column with a really good question, which is, look, if they can do this why electrics with electrics, why are they even making fuel-powered cars anymore? 
Yeah. It was it was a really interesting thought, you know? Well, and with all these EV chargers that are supposed to be built, given the money for it in the infrastructure law, and I imagine there's going to be right. an additional boost given the climate bill that just went through, the Inflation Reduction yep. Act, you know, the range anxiety mm-hmm. situation is going to be much easier. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is going to really start to get to be to the point of why would you get a gas car? Because they're going to be yeah, more sure. expensive to operate. They're going mm-hmm. to be more expensive to maintain because it just gas has a lot. The gas powered engines have a lot of moving parts, a lot more moving parts, <laughs> I think. Right. I think right. I'm Literally, not an expert right. on that. Yeah. Anyway. No they, no, they do. They yeah. for sure do. You betcha. So, yeah. Could, anyway. could it be that the market yeah, cool actually story. ends up pushing gas power, powered vehicles Don't off mess with out the of things? That's right. Don't mess with the market. Yeah. Okay. So the other story I have is something that one of our listeners tagged for me on Twitter, which is a thread by a guy named Dan Runchy who writes a newsletter called Trapital, sharing insights on music, media, and culture. But it is this long Twitter thread talking about how Cash App basically was not really used very much and was way losing to Venmo early on and then started partnering with rap artists and then exploded in popularity. And it's this really interesting breakdown of the business model and how they leveraged sort of black hip-hop culture to grow the business in a way that was just much more exponential than how Venmo did. And so (laughs) he made a chart that is quite adorable, I should say, that highlights the difference in the way that Venmo got customers versus Cash App got customers. So Venmo got a couple of like Ivy League, you know, sort of exclusive people first who then told their friends who told their friends who told their friends. And that's how Venmo built up its model. Whereas Cash App basically got one or two hip hop artists, all of their fans, Mm. (laughs) and then the friends of the fans, which it's just very fascinating. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. Totally. Cash apps and all that jazz. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. What's yours? Uh, Okay. So I've got two, uh, one of which is substantive and one of which is a a, a teensy bit not, but worth noting anyway. Um, So I read in in Bloomberg today, um, and if you had any doubt about the, uh, how to put this, about the rise of China uh, economically and geopolitically, this one's going to put it to rest. For Damn near 80 years or 75 years since the end of the Second World War, Japan has been, shall we say, restrained in its military activity and its military spending, right? Um, They didn't even have an army and a navy. They had a Japanese self-defense force, right? Mm -hmm. That was constitutionally proscribed. Um, They limited uh, defense spending to something like 1% of gross domestic product. And Japan is like the third largest economy in the world. So that's a whole ton of money. But stand by because it's getting bigger. Japan is set to increase its military spending to boost it from ninth in the world to third in the world behind the United States and China. Basically, there is no limit now on what the diet will approve for military spending. And that is all about the rise of China and Taiwan and threats and all of that. And I just think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a marker of um, change in the Asia Pacific region. And I think we all ought not sleep on that because that's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal when China starts spending like that. Uh, so that's that's the substantive and, and somewhat gloomy one. Yeah, go ahead. What? Sorry. 
I've just been so fascinated that, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing in the military-industrial complex after the withdrawal Mm -hmm. from Afghanistan because Mm -hmm. the U.S. government had been spending so much money there for so long. And it took us not a year (laughs) and a half to have plenty of other wars and places for that spending to be made up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Totally fair. Totally fair. All right. So here's my other one. So um, reasonable people can disagree about uh, the student loan repayment uh, uh, not moratorium. He actually canceled a bunch of debt yesterday. The mm-hmm. president did. Ten thousand. Well, you all know the numbers. It's It's been in there. Yeah. So here's, here's what I just love about this. There are a more than a handful, probably upwards of a dozen, maybe two dozen Republican members <laughs> of Congress who are going around saying things like, Marjorie Taylor Greene said on Newsmax yesterday, for our government to just say, okay, your debt is completely forgiven, it's completely unfair. And then the White House, and I don't know if there's like an intern in the White House doing their social media feed right now, or but the White House pointed out that Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene, through her business, had $183,504 in paycheck protection loans completely forgiven. Congress people notoriously take credit for bills they voted against. Mm -hmm. They do everything they can to boost their own profiles. This is not extraordinary by any means that a congressperson would do this, but there is a certain mm, to the White House itself slapping back on Republican Congress people doing this. Yeah, and it's a whole thread of them. And I have to say, there's a zillion of them. I do love a good dose of petty, and this is real petty. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I love petty. I I was very entertained by it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's great. And and honestly, to the to the intern running the White House social media account, you go. You just go. I imagine that was probably a seasoned professional. Yeah, it probably probably was. Maybe I'm giving the intern too much credit. But anyway, (laughs) anyway, there you go. That's the White House communication strategy on PPP loans and student debts. That's what we got. Charlton, let us go. Are you sure that wasn't actually your Make Me Smile? Uh, Well, you know, as I was driving up here, having put that in there, I was like, oh, man, that really could have been a make me smile because I'm I'm literally smiling right now. But instead, I'm going with this one. And it's not really make me smile. It's a history matters and what's happening stinks um, commentary. So in 1957 to 1962, the east front of the United States Capitol, which is to say the part that faces away from the mall, Mm -hmm. was renovated and expanded and actually stretched out so that uh, Congress could have more room. When that renovation was done, there was a whole bunch of marble and stone that the architects of the Capitol didn't know what to do with. And it stored it for a while in a warehouse about a mile and a half from the Capitol. And then, like in the late 70s, early 80s, took all that stone, and we're talking tons and tons of it. It's a huge pile, and plopped it. That's the only word that can be used to describe it. Plopped it in the middle of Rock Creek Park, which is a lovely, forested, hilly, nice park that runs up through Washington, D.C. And they plopped it there on the side, just Mm -hmm. not on a marked trail. They just chucked it there. Um, And it's become something of an attraction, right? It's got a Yelp review, and it's just cool, and it's history that's right there. You can't actually go and touch the stones anymore because they fenced it off. But anyway, it's a cool thing. And if history's your thing, you're like, wow, that's really cool. These are stones from the United States Capitol. Well, reports the the, uh, Washington Post uh, today, those stones are now going to be moved out of there and put in a either a National Park Service or Architect of the Capitol Warehouse where they will be away from public view. 
And I would just like to say that stinks. That's it. That stinks. Yeah, this... That's my rant. This That's kind of rant. blew up in, like, D.C. Twitter a little bit before yeah. I left. People are less than pleased. It stinks. Yeah. How ironic. I have a California story today, and you have a D.C. story, even though I'm in California. Oh, that's funny. But you're not True. in D.C. Yes. Yes. Um, my, I guess my Make Me Smile is also a D.C. story, which is that uh, if you filed your taxes late during the pandemic and had to pay a penalty for it, you may be getting a refund from the IRS because the IRS has announced that, and I'm reading from the CNBC story here, Nearly 1.6 million filers will automatically receive a collective 1.2 billion plus in penalty refunds or credits. And many of those payments are going to go through by the end of September. So if you got stuck with it and ended up having to pay a penalty or a fee, you're probably going to get that back. Now, what entertained me the most about this uh, was (laughs) in the IRS press release, this reminds me of that... um, piece that Catherine Rampell did that about like in the yeah. IRS where like they have documents and documents and documents everywhere and they're so backlogged and they don't have enough staff to process all the returns and everything. So here's what the IRS press release says. Besides providing relief to both individuals and businesses impacted by the pandemic, this step is designed to allow the IRS to focus its resources on processing backlog tax returns and taxpayer correspondence to help them return to normal operations for the 2023 filing season. They're giving it all these people $1.6 billion in refunds so they can get caught up on their work. Yeah, buddy. John. And if you haven't seen it yet, we'll put it on the show page. If you haven't seen it yet, go read that Catherine Rampell column on the on the um, Internal Revenue Service. It's crazy. Yeah. Just and 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 in many ways unforgivable. Thank you, Congress. Well, they're getting yeah. some money now. Yeah, they are. Yeah, see, they are. See, good luck finding anybody to hire, though. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So we are done uh, on those notes. Uh, back tomorrow for Economics on Tap. Grab a beverage of your choice. Head over to the YouTube live stream. We will start at 6.30 Eastern time, 3.30 uh, Pacific out of here for both of us this week. We'll have uh, some news. We'll do some drinks, play a round of half full, half empty, and uh, send you on your merry way. Yes, and please keep sending us your merry thoughts or questions. Our email is makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a message at 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart, which is the podcast you are listening to, is produced by Marissa Cabrera. Olivia Zhao is our intern. Today's episode was engineered by Charlton Thorpe. Bridget Bodner is the senior producer. And Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Charlton was so convinced that you were still here earlier. I know. I'm sorry. I, I totally blew it. I should have gone. I'm back. All good. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. 
Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.